Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, we welcome the face of experimental rock and one of my favorite people to talk to. Leader of the Melvins, guitar virtuoso for Phantomus, singer-songwriter for King Buzzo, and the Buzzo himself, Buzz Osborne. Buzz, it's been a while. How are things? How long has it been? Uh... Four years, I think. Four years? Okay, yeah, that's not too long. (laughs) It's been a while. A lot has happened in four years. I'm I'm doing okay under house arrest, you know, as they say, with this pandemic nightmare. But everybody's talking about that, I'm sure. So, Um, you know, doing the best I can. Well, I'd like to talk about this new album for a little bit because I was not expecting. I think we should. Well, I was not expecting after this machine kills artists that you were going to tamper with the sound this much. Oh, good. But what a way to do it by getting Trevor Dunn to play stand-up bass on it. How did the two of you come to know each other? Was it before you even played together in Phantomus? Oh, yeah, yeah. We played shows with Mr. Bungle in the early 90s. Um, uh, after Mike Patton was uh, MTV poster boy with Faith No More. So, um... We did a bunch of shows with them then, and then uh, kind of, kind of, years went by, and it morphed into this Phantomos thing. And then that was when I really got to know Trevor really well, and now I consider Trevor one of my best best friends. So that's great. It's all good. Well, did you want this album to have a vastly different sound than This Machine Kills Artists? I did. I concentrated on that when I first started out with uh, the idea that I was going to do acoustic vocals and uh, acoustic guitar vocals and the modular synth. That's why I wanted to do an album like that. And then I had most of the record done when I got the idea to do put some stuff with Trevor on it. That was kind of how that worked. We got together. We, we decided well over a year ago that we were going to do, we would tour together when this record come out, and he would do a stand-up bass thing as an opening thing. And, and we'd have a lot of fun, do a big tour, maybe go to Europe, do the U.S. Um, and then... Uh, he came out, and I go, well, maybe we could record, like, an EP or something we could sell on the tour. We'll do a couple songs together or whatever. And he's like, sure. So he came out for a couple of days, and I go, well, why don't you try playing bass on one of these songs? We can put it on the EP. It'll be different than what's on the record. You know? And he's like, okay. So he tried it, and I was like, oh, my God, this is so good. So then I, I uh, invited him to play on another song, and then as it turned out, he played on about 90% of the record. So I'm, I'm no dummy. When something sounds good, I'm in, you know? I'm not going to just let it let it fall by the wayside. So, of course, I was going to let him do whatever he wanted, and of course, I was going to add it to the record. And then we didn't write the whole thing together, so that's why it's a King Buzzo with Trevor Dunn, as opposed to a um, Trevor Dunn King Buzzo record. Now we now since the uh, our tour and every, all of our plans got completely canceled, we want to do a uh, another record that we write together, and then uh, that will be a more of a fifty fifty collaboration. So that then do a tour as well. So that that's our point. Well, speaking of COVID, how much prep time for touring had you and Trevor done before this whole COVID thing hit? A shitload. We had a tour booked. I, I, I mean, I mastered the record in December nineteenth, and the tour was almost completely booked by by you know o- October before that. So. Um, it was, uh, you know, well in advance. And then we did tons and tons of press. The record was supposed to come out the day I started the tour, like May 13th or May 12th. And we were supposed to be on tour as we speak, right up until the beginning of July. 
and all that was canceled, all of it. So then the record got pushed back to August, and I still am not going to be able to do any tours. I mean, I probably won't play a live show of any kind in front of an audience no sooner than next March, you know? So this is the first time in 30-plus years that I haven't done somewhere between 80 and 120 shows in, in the year. First year, ever. So it's a... Uh, uh, it's really weird. It's odd. It's a strange thing for me to be doing. Um, the pandemic type of thing is, uh, you know, they change their minds about what's happening about every 48 hours. So it's really difficult to uh, predict and go along with. And, and, you know, these are just elected officials. They're not, they don't know anything. Nothing. So um, it's anybody's guess what will happen. There's fucking lock the stuff up i'm just hoping it's the right thing to do i don't know we'll see time will tell well is it going to be hard getting trevor with the mr bungo reunion happening or is that over now and it's really just the two of you kind of waiting to hit the road now well you have to understand with something like mr bungle a big tour for them might be a few weeks true that's it so you know i mean look you know we work really hard i work all the time and work really hard and it looks like I'm a total workaholic, but compared to what? Compared to who? You know what I mean? It's like most musicians aren't really that hardworking. They kind of sit around their ass and do nothing. So uh, uh, that's really kind of where that's at. So I don't feel like I work that hard. I still manage to do tons of records and somewhere between no less than 60 to 140 shows a year. Um uh, uh, I don't, and I still have time to do lots of other stuff. So, you know, um, I spend a lot of time on this. It's probably 70% of my waking hours was spent on music stuff, one form or another, uh, whether it's a managerial side of it or actually making music or figuring out what the next strategy for whatever it is we're going to do is it's, uh, time consuming and, um, I'm up for the challenge. Well, you put the six pack release out on AMREP. Uh, even though this yeah. time around you you had one of Mike Patton's boys right there on the recording, what was the decision to head over there for the release? Or do you just like doing the single release vinyl stuff over at AMREP because it's pretty much set up for the Melvin single stuff already? Yeah, well, we've done probably 25 or 30 releases with AMREP that were like that uh, over the years. So it's nothing new. We've been putting out probably four or five of them just this year alone and the new one coming out soon. And then we do regular type of albums on Epic Act. So there's never, ever, ever was there a plan to put that on a, um, on a Epic Act at all. So. Well, do you still think that people are bitching about the limited AMREP releases? Or do you think after this amount of time, people are finally starting to get it? Uh, you know, people will bitch about everything. What can you, I don't listen to that kind of stuff. It's like, you know, constructive criticism at this point, I don't really want to hear the end of any of those sentences. I just don't want to hear it. You know, once in a while, somebody will say something that I kind of go along with, but usually they're just wrong about everything. So um, I, it, 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 it's, it's really weird how I don't understand how people think. I really honestly don't get it most, in most cases. So um, I don't worry about it. I said, well, you will find someone who will have a hard time or, or disagree with anything you do. I could include $100 bills 
in each of the records, and there'd still be <laughs> someone who would bitch about it. You know, my hundred dollar bill was bent on the corners, you know, or something. You just can't listen to it. Everybody has an opinion online, and they are. And there's so many of them that they are ultimately totally worthless. You know, completely worthless because there's, it's just like a echo chamber of nonsense of everybody who knows better about what, what I should do than I do. And so you can't get caught up in that. And what you have to do is just stick to what you originally thought was good. The point is that you think it's good. You're not perversely trying to piss anybody off. That's the easiest thing in the world. I don't do that kind of thing, you know? And for people to think that I would do that kind of thing, that what kind of a person do they think I am? You know, I've never understood that. It's just like, Jesus Christ, are you joking? That's just absurd. All of it's absurd. I don't get any of it. So I just try not to go there, not let that affect what I'm doing in any way, and not worry about it, you know, essentially. Well, back to Gift of Sacrifice. Was it a yeah. pretty quick writing process, or have you been toying with these songs since This Machine Kills Artists? Well, I probably started recording this about three years ago, you know, maybe a little longer, and did it in little batches, so um, between stuff that the Melvins are doing. But it's really funny, though, you have people go, well, how come there's not a new Melvins release? Well, it's like, you know, I got a new solo acoustic record. How much, how much do you want me to do? <laughs> I've been busy working on this to some degree, and then a whole lot of other stuff has come out. It's not like we're sitting around, but like I said, you can't, you cannot, you cannot please everyone, and sometimes you can't please anyone. Well, I don't know how everybody can't be pleased with this new album. It is a roller coaster of just—it's almost a history lesson in music. I I find this new album to just be a ride. So congratulations yeah, yeah, on that. You. It's it, it's a hell of an album. It really is. I appreciate that. Thanks so much. Well, both you and Trevor are huge film fans. Do you ever talk about these influences at all whenever you get together? Oh, my God. I don't even know where to begin with that kind of stuff. <laughs> I don't even know where, I don't know where it begins and ends. Um, film, film is, one of the, to me, one of the ultimate art, art, art forms other than just straight up music. And, uh, um, I am probably involved in some aspect of that every single day, watching movies or whatever it is, you know? So I love that kind of stuff. I live for it. How did the whole Phantomist project come to be? Well, my dad wrote a bunch of music and wanted to put a band together to play it. It's all his stuff. I had nothing to do with writing any of it. I had nothing to do with arranging any of it. I had nothing to do with deciding what sounds were going to be on the record. I had nothing to do with what kind of parts I was going to play. And uh, it's his thing. And, and he wanted me and Trevor and originally the drummer from Sepultura who couldn't do it, so we got Dave Lombardo, to play this music of his. So that's where it was at. So in that situation, I wasn't doing anything. It was kind of refreshing. It was kind of refreshing to do that. Well, have you and Mike and Trevor ever talked about evolving into maybe just doing a full film score? Are you been recreating a film score more than just the... Well, you the, know, Phantomus did... Phantom, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say more than just the director's cut that Phantomus did. Okay. We, what do you mean? Like, do one for a film score for someone? Yeah. For a movie? Well, I think Mike Patton does a lot of that on his own. Mm-hmm. I don't know that uh, um, he would ever involve us two in it. Um, 
And if he did, I don't know that it would really be a collaboration. Uh, so, you know, unless he just wanted to hire me to play guitar in it, I can't, I can't really see that happening. Um, and the other thing is, is uh, there might be people out there that want him to do stuff. But I have virtually no interest from anyone to use any of our music in anything. So, um, and I'm not going to go out and try to get people to convince people to do it. If they can't figure it out, there's not really much I can do about it. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Have you ever had the urge to reimagine an entire score and re-record it? Maybe something like Wise Blood or The Treasure of the Sierra Madre? Um, no. Uh, uh, we did a record a couple years ago called uh, A Walk with Love and Death, mm-hmm. which we made a, it's a double album. We made one album was more of a regular Melvin's type of record and the other side was other record was uh, we made what we imagined to be a film score for a movie that didn't exist how we would make the film score and so we did it and then later me and my buddy Jesse Nyman and we made the movie to go along with the film score so called The Walk of Love and Death it's a 33 minute movie so that kind of did expanded on that very idea you know for that Tool Festival back in 2017, how was it playing with those guys again and getting to reconnect with Tool? Uh, I was fine. You know, I mean, uh, um, I don't do real well in those kinds of big environments with, uh, you know, overblown production and ridiculous nonsense along those lines and a bunch of asshole people running around trying to make sure everything works. Um, I much prefer my own shows. I mean, I'll do stuff like that, but by and large, it's, Playing with bands along those lines is not very satisfying. Not really. Once you've done it a bunch of times, it's just kind of a pain in the ass. We did some shows last year with the Tours. That was great. That was really fun. Um, it's just few and far between. You know, when you get a crew, like Tool will have, it'll be like 70-plus people, right? The vast majority of them, meaning 60%, don't give a fuck about you being there and to them you're just a pain in their hat that's all you are and they make sure that you understand that every step of the way and that to me is more more of a deterrence than anything else that I could think of uh, in playing those shows is just having to deal with the asshole road crew people and most of them are fucking dicks I can't stand it I just want to set them all on fire shove them off a cliff Really. So that ruins it. That kind of thing over the years, dealing with those fucking assholes has ruined any aspect of me enjoying it. You know, and not so much the bands. Um, I don't really like those venues that much, but um, I could put up with it if I didn't have to deal with the crew. You know, that's essentially it. The road managers, the roadies. You know, once in a while you'll find really nice ones, and we have had that happen. But by and large, it's, that's not the case. You're shoved around like meaningless garbage, essentially. I don't really like that. I don't do well in that environment. Well, I'd like to take you into influence territory for a moment. We've touched on this before, but the filmmaker John Houston has had a huge impact on all of your work, as well as many other filmmakers have. Could you ever see yourself stepping behind the camera and doing a feature? Well, we, me, me and my buddy Jesse did that movie, Walk With Love and Death, 
and then I mostly did a movie uh, six years ago or something uh, um, where we did uh, we did a tour where we did 51 shows in 51 days, mm-hmm. and we played every state and D.C. in 51 days, and uh, uh, we filmed that the whole time and put that together. So I've done like, a little bit of love that thing on my own. I uh, love photography. I take a lot of pictures on my own, and uh, what I realize is most, most of the directors that I like that are good all of them are pretty good photographers. So I like that. So I have an Instagram account, Real King Buzzo. This just, just shows my, no pictures of me. It just shows my photography. So um, people can check that out, out if they want to. That's been a passion of mine for a long time. So I've always been curious about this, but for Spread Eagle Beagle and Natural Born Killers, what was the decision behind having it credited to Roger and not to Buzz? No, it wasn't my decision. My name is Buzz. My, my parents gave me that name when I was about a week old. My legal name is Roger, and some people think it's cute to put that down, but I don't go by that. I, I've, I've never been called Roger. You know, only, only people that call me Roger are dummies or people who don't know me at all. You know, that's it. Even though it's my legal name, I've never been called that, even since I was a little kid. So, if I was going to give myself a name, it would be something cooler than Buzz. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so I don't know. I didn't make that decision. I never would. I, I'm not Buzz. I'm not Roger. I'm Buzz. I'm not Roger. My name is not Roger. That's like giving a dog a uh, different name than they're used to. You know, you know well, your name is Fido, but I'm going to call you Killer. <laughs> doesn't make any sense. Like, people can do that. It doesn't irritate me, you know. It just doesn't do anything. It's stare at them like, you, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to, it doesn't mean anything to me. It's like if you call me George, you know, or Paco. Hey, Paco. That's about as meaningless to me as Roger. So it doesn't get under my skin. Well, you've mentioned guys like Thomas Sawell before as being huge influences. Oh, Thomas Sowell, yeah. Do you think uh, philosophies like his are gaining more traction right now? I don't think anybody cares about anything he says, unfortunately. You know, I think he's the greatest philosopher of our time. The greatest and uh, PhD economist. I think that his, his um, you know, I think he's the, one of the greatest geniuses of our, of, 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 certainly in my life. Um, and he's in his 80s now, and it's going to be a really sad day when he dies. And people will be hypercritical of his stuff, and none of them have ever read any of his stuff, ever. He wrote over 30 books. I don't think anybody cares. It's unfortunate because the people that understand what he's talking about really get that he's hitting home runs with everything he does. That's that's the truth. And uh, people don't see that. You know, you, you, there's nothing you can do about it. I love his stuff. It's been a massive influence on me. If people don't see it that way, you know, really not, I, I don't have the energy to try to convince them. I just don't. You know, they need to do this research on their own. If they have something that they want to give me that they like a lot more, um, that, that they think I should read that I haven't already read. I'm still waiting, you know. I'm still waiting for people to give me those uh, unbelievable sources that they get all of their amazing information from. You know? Usually it's nothing more than TV, so, which I don't really spend much time in front of the TV. I don't have time for it. I'm sitting there doing nothing, letting someone else do the work for me. Yeah. I'll, watch, I'll watch movies while I'm doing stuff, but just regular TV, I haven't seen any of that since the early 80s. I have no idea what's on it. 
Well, did Greg Sage and the Wipers have influence on you because they were from the area that you grew up in? Or were you only really hearing them through the albums and not really getting to see them live? How much of those local artists the, did you see live back in the day? Oh, I saw I saw the Wipers live a, a number of times, and they were always good. Um, I don't think it had anything to do with they were from that area. I couldn't have cared less about that. Um, uh, I think I thought and think that they're one of the best bands ever. And uh, I don't really, I didn't know any of those guys. Never met any of them. I met the bass player way later that was on a Youth of America album. But uh, uh, as far as the rest of them goes, I never, ever, ever said a word to any of them. I'm not good at that kind of stuff. I'm not good at networking and, you know, along those lines. I'm terrible at it. I'm just not that guy. At this point in your career, what would you think if the Melvins finally got their due and were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Uh, I don't I don't care at all about that kind of thing. I think that kind of stuff is, is ridiculous. It's arbitrary. Um, it's meaningless. Uh, and I pretty much would take the same attitude that the Sex Pistols did, which was they're not going to go along with it. It's, I don't like that kind of industry standard good old boys type of thing. I just don't care about it. It means, it means nothing to me. No, nothing. I, don't, I generally don't like the stuff that they think is amazing, and I don't understand how they decide what it is, and I don't really particularly care about it. It's meaningless to me. Those bands don't mean anything, you know. They, they should put the birthday party in there. That's not going to happen. Or Flipper. They should be in there. They're not going to ever be in there. So why would I be care? Or Throbbing Gristle. You know, why aren't these bands in, uh, you know, Oh, they're not? Oh, okay. Well, I couldn't care less. Or Red Cross. No. I just don't care. Well, you're Meaningless w- to me, I would, not even set, I would not even set foot in the place, you know, ever. Well, your wife has always been a big part of the Melvin's look. Even if you aren't using Mackie's designs, do you always go to her first with ideas? Well, we've been married the better part of 27 years, and we've worked together through that entire time quite a lot um and she's a professional designer graphic designer so of course i would always go to her and get her advice about anything that we're doing the only time we don't is when we do hazelmeyer stuff because he's uh he does the covers for those i think she's one of the best designers ever is uh is rebecca severin still making clothes for you oh yeah yeah very good yeah in montreal yeah, I've known her since she lived in uh, San Francisco. Long time ago. Well, your first tour with the Melvins was up here in Canada. Would you still consider that to be the hardest time in your career? Or was it the initial move to San Francisco harder in trying to garner an audience? We went to Canada. You mean the, we, we, in 1985 when we drove up to Calgary and Edmonton and Winnipeg? Yeah. yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Oh. Um... That was that was fun, but um, you know we were pretty much universally hated everywhere we went in Canada. Every show we played, we were playing to a dull, uninterested, slack-jawed audience that we certainly weren't getting through to. You know, and then uh, I moved to San Francisco a year and a half later or so. Was uh, um, we did a lot better down there, and uh, but we always did okay in Seattle. You know, but um, I wasn't really a big fan. I didn't really want to live there. I wanted to get out of there. I wanted to go somewhere else and start over. 
and make it work. And uh, California was definitely the place I wanted to live in, just like the Beverly Hillbillies. Um, and uh, I have been there, been here ever since. So I moved here in 86, 87, and I've, this is the only place I've lived. I lived in San Francisco for seven years, and I've been in L.A. for 27 years, over 27 years. So well over half my life in California. You've worked with a lot of engineers. Who would you say was the best at capturing the the sound that you've always wanted? Well, we worked with a guy named Toshi Kasai now, and we have for a long time. I really like working with him. It's easy and super great. And I liked working with Joe Barisi. Those two come to mind. Those are my two favorites. Toshi is the guy we've worked with the most. I can't see that changing. We get along with him really well, and uh, I think he does unbelievably great work. Well, what can we expect coming up from the Melvins? It's best to not expect anything because then you can be pleasantly surprised. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're working on, right now, I'm working on a a new Melvin's 1983 record with the original drummer. That's always fun. And we have a a lot of other stuff planned. We got a Mudhoney EP that's coming out soon where Mark and Steve from Mudhoney collaborated with them on something. Hopefully we can at some point expand that into a full-length album. That'd be great. We're reissuing a bunch of the records on Ipecac on uh, vinyl. Four of them, four or five of them coming up soon. So all kinds of stuff. Well, I'd like to thank you for taking the time out of your day to, to speak with me today. It's always a pleasure yeah, to talk you. to you, Buzz. And uh, I, I appreciate any and all interest in our band. Thank you so much. And I hope everybody goes and checks out the new album. It is absolutely fantastic. I appreciate those nice words. You are uh, unbelievably amazing. Thank you. Thanks, Buzz. Thank you for listening. It's always a pleasure to speak to Buzz. Hopefully this whole COVID thing will end soon, and you can catch Buzz doing what he does best, performing live. But until then, make sure you pick up the new King Buzzo album, Gift of Sacrifice, due out on August 14th through Ipecac Records. And there is decades worth of material from the Melvins and Phantomus and other Buzz Osborne-affiliated projects that need your time and attention. This concludes our broadcast day.